Welcome to Counterculture Parents. I'm Kurt Bruner, your host, and thanks for listening. On this episode, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine named Tim Hawks, and I'll do that by sharing excerpts from a sermon he gave. Now, Tim is the lead pastor of Hill Country Bible Church in Austin, Texas, and I've had the honor of getting to know and work with Tim and his team as they've tried to help parents who are making counterculture choices. They've recognized that we live in an increasingly antagonistic culture and that those who are trying to raise disciples of Christ rather than products of the culture need to make some courageous choices. So Tim Hawks has shown real leadership as a pastor trying to make a difference in his congregation and trying to come alongside those parents. But he does so coming from a big picture understanding of what kinds of challenges we're facing in our generation as parents and why it's getting more difficult. Well, not long ago, he taught a series out of Second Peter. And I encourage you to read the book of Second Peter uh, to get a sense of the context here. Because Peter is writing to the early church and they were already facing antagonism. Not surprisingly, because Jesus promised this would be the case. Now, the portion of Tim's sermon that I'm going to be sharing here is not specifically targeting parents. It's talking to us more generally as believers. But he does an excellent job of using what's happened in history in other contexts to frame what we're facing in our day and age. And this helps us gain perspective as we embolden ourselves to make the courageous choices necessary to be counterculture parents. So let's listen to portions of a message by Tim Hawks, pastor of Hill Country Bible Church, as they introduce this series, Being Christian in a Hostile World. Today's church is much like the early church. Now, just like then, Christians are navigating what it means to live in a culture that is counter to what we believe. In such an adverse world, we need to be reminded of what it means to be a Christian and ask ourselves, Are we being formed into the likeness of Jesus or deformed by a hostile world? Good morning. I'm curious, I I want to start with a question today. Have you personally ever believed a lie? So let, let me give you a big one for me. So when I grew up in Michigan, in elementary school, I was taught a simple little phrase to remember my history with, and the phrase was this, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue and discovered the world was round. You know what? That's not true. Now, for some of you, you're thinking like... Who would have ever believed that? Like, I was never taught that in school. And some of you are thinking right now, what? You mean that's not true? Actually, I was 50 years old when I found out that that's not true. And you say, well, what part of it's not true? The part that's not true is the part that the world believed that the earth was flat in 1492. It did not only know that the world was round in 1492, but it did in 1392 and 1292 and 1192, all the way back to the third century before Jesus. You say, well, how in the world could the school get that so wrong? Because it wasn't just my school. It was every school and university in the United States that was teaching that. In fact, I learned that when the British Historical Society 30 years earlier had said that the flat earth myth was one of the 10 greatest hoax 
in the history of the world. Ten greatest hoax. Well, where that came from is in the late 1800s, early 1900s, there were a group of educators that decided that they needed to figure out a way to pull the universities away from Christianity because almost all the private schools and a number of the public schools in the United States were actually founded as Christian colleges by Christian educators, universities, libraries, even public education throughout history had come through the process of the church bringing it forward and so how do we get these universities like Yale and Harvard and Princeton and so forth to give up on Christianity? So th there were a couple of these folks that actually fabricated a whole history of the world to say that the church had always been against science. And they cited the flat earth myth that the church said the world was flat as the reason to believe that the church was always antagonistic to science. Now, the evidence for what happened historically is overwhelming. Like, it's something that you think, how in the world did they get away with that? Well, they got away with it because it began to be taught in the colleges, and so teachers learned it at school, and they began to teach it in the classrooms, and a generation grew up believing it, and another generation grew up believing it, another generation grew up believing it, until everybody actually believed it. And then finally... Some historians stood up to it and said, we can't let this stuff go on. So here's what's real. What's real is, is that anybody that is aware, that doesn't still think what they were taught, but actually knows what's true, no longer believes that the church thought that the earth was flat, and it certainly wasn't that way in Christopher Columbus's day. But here's what everybody still believes. Test yourself if you believe this that the church has always been anti-science. You see, what happened is the truth was eventually clarified, but the goal stuck. The goal stuck. That's the problem of a lie. The point is, all throughout the history of the church, people have been telling lies about Christianity in the church, and it was no different in the first century. In fact, when Peter was writing, the myth that was being told or lied about was that Christians were cannibals because the bread represented the body and the cup represented the blood. They said that Christians actually were eating flesh and blood from humans in the communion service. And that circulated widely as a lie within the church. The persecutions always existed in different forms. The church has always been criticized. Jesus has been criticized in different forms. But in the last century, in the 20th century, there was a phenomenon that took place that was really profound. There were a group of nations that decided, based on the utopian idea that they could create a perfect society, a perfect world, dove into a massive experiment using control of thoughts, if we can make everybody think the same thing, and if we can't, then we'll shame them, intimidate them, reprogram them, and imprison them, 
to get everybody on the same page, because if we can get everybody on the same page around the right ideals that we could actually create a perfect world where everybody and everything work together. One of those nations, the Soviet Union, started in 1917, and over the course of its life, literally exterminated tens of millions of their own citizens in order to support this ideology that they had created to make a perfect world. One of the key proponents of that ideology was we need to eliminate all traces of God, all traces of religion. we got to stamp that out. That's what's ruining the world, and we've got to stamp that out. So they went after that. Uh, many people thought that this would never happen again. Like, no, n- never could this ever happen again. Like, how could this happen and anybody ever go back and try to do that again? But one of the big spokesmen, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was a Russian dissident that was put in prison in the gulag, and finally, when he was released to the West, he warned the West and he said, listen, if it could happen in Russia, if it could happen in China, and I can name a whole bunch of other countries, if it could happen there that nations would exterminate their own people to promote their ideology. It could also happen in Europe, and it could also happen in the United States. Now, there are some people today that are starting to look at kind of the trends, the utopian influence or impulse, and say, is it possible that like, we're starting to see a little bit of that in America today? One of those guys... Rod Dreher wrote a book, Live Not By Lies. That was the statement that Alexander Solzhenitsyn said. This was the key to overcoming these kind of things. And Rod Dreher began to interview people that lived in the former Soviet Union and ask them, now that you're living in the West, what are you experiencing? And he, he chronicles in this book, Live Not By Lies, people raising the alarm. Like, I can't believe that you guys are doing this in America, what we saw happen Um, in the former Soviet Union. So we've seen CEOs, we've seen college professors, we've seen professional athletes, uh, we've seen employees of corporations lose their jobs for saying something out loud, expressing an opinion out loud that just 10 years earlier was considered mainstream. We've also seen things like states, boycotting states over ideology. And the purpose of a boycott, keep in mind, is to put economic pressure on a group of people. So if somebody boycotts the state of Texas, they're hoping that business and economy would go bad so your lives would get worse, so you would rise up and overthrow whatever ideology to conform to what another state thinks is the ideology. We've seen sports teams boycott cities. Not going to play in that city because you guys have the wrong way of thinking in that city. We've seen... Businesses picketed, protested, sued. We've seen churches in Austin picketed, protested when worshipers were coming to church on Sunday morning just because of what they believe. I mean, some of these things have happened, but all of us have had friends, family members, neighbors, even schools in disruption and conflict with each other. The year was 1963. The location was in Odessa, Ukraine, part of the former Soviet Union. Odessa sits on the Black Sea, 
uh, being a seaport there, the temperature is typically mild all the time. And there was a girl sitting in class, her name, Irina, and Irina's 10 years old, she's sitting in class, and she looks through the dirty windows of her classroom, and she sees snowflakes starting to fall. Now, the class that she was sitting in was one of the mandatory classes for all students, and it was atheism. Now, for 46 years since the founding of the Soviet Union, they had been trying to teach the children that there is no God, including these mandatory classes. And so the teachers taught it, the supervisors of the school taught it, all of the government officials taught it, all of the people in power taught it, everybody was teaching it. And here's what Irene is thinking. They're trying too hard. Every drama that the school does is all about how bad Christians are and all of this effort. She thought to herself while she was sitting there, God, you must be real, because why would they spend this much effort? on something that's not real, and you must be so powerful that they would be this afraid of you. And while she's sitting there, looking out the window, she prayed her first prayer. She said, God, the only reason why I have to sit through this atheism class is because of you. She said, because if you didn't If you didn't exist, they wouldn't be wasting all this time on you. She said, so if you're real, then make it snow. And for the next three days, it snowed and snowed and snowed and snowed. The deepest, most snow accumulation in 60 years in that city. School was called off. She was out there playing with the kids, building forts and snowmen. And all the time, she's thinking about this God who could make it snow over atheistic, communist airspace. And she thought, you must be real and you must be powerful. And over the next several years, without any help or encouragement from anyone, she began to pray, began to think, began to wrestle with what she was being taught. And it wasn't until 13 years later that she finally got a hold of a copy of the Bible, which was outlawed in the Soviet Union. And she got a hold of a copy and she read it. And she thought, everything I've ever dreamed about you is all true. It totally transformed her life. So how is it possible that in a place where there's no access to any relationship with God, and yet God can still speak to a 10-year-old girl in an atheism class. The reason why is because God is on his throne. He's in his holy temple. And if you're a follower of Jesus, if you forget that, you'll get wrapped up in all kinds of fear that will hold you back. And when we fear we tend to react in one of three ways. Our response to fear is fight, flight, or freeze. The temptation is fight. Some people get aggressive to a threat. The other response is to retreat, to, to, like I'm going to a monastery. I'm going to pull my kids, myself back, like we're out of here. And the third response, which I think is for most people, is the freeze. 
I'm just going to put my head down, no matter what's being said or what's being done, I'm going to put my head down, I'm going to roll with it, I'm going to go along with it, I'm going to protect myself. And what's interesting is, in the former Soviet Union, and that's just one example, but in that place, the majority of the people did not agree with what was happening. And yet, over time, they went along with it. That was one of the first things that happened when Irina became a believer, when she first prayed and believed in God, was she said, I will no longer just say and do and go along with everything else because my relationship with God and my own humanity is at stake. And so we tell the truth. We live the truth. And that's why people need to know the truth and think about it rather than simply just buying party line statements. Now, the reason why statements that are not critically evaluated oftentimes become something that is normative in the culture is because most of what's said in the culture is self-reinforcing. And so if you spend all your time on social media, you're going to hear a similar message. On the media, you're going to get similar messages. If you spend your time listening to what everybody says in the culture, you're going to get similar messages. And very few people are giving an equal amount of time to really reading the Word of God, having conversations in Christian community. Alexander Solzhenitsyn said this, a lie cannot survive if it's not in a person. Lies are statements, but if nobody embraces them or believes them, they don't continue to exist. And so being willing to actually speak up like, you don't have to be mean, aggressive, or challenging everything you hear. But when you know you're in a situation where a lie is stated, and you have the truth to not tell the truth, what that does is that allows your silence to be co-opted. And so, oftentimes, we let vocal minorities do all the talking, and the, the majority that's silent, it, we, everybody assumes that everybody agrees with that. And if you're sitting in the silent majority and you're thinking, well, that's not exactly right, but it doesn't seem like anybody else thinks that way, maybe I'm the only one. You actually do a, ser- a service to other people by explaining at least your point of view. So, Irene... Arena. She got a Bible at age 23. She started writing poetry about Christianity and about the challenges that were in her country. And that was traveling all over the Soviet Union and then being picked up all over the world. She was getting tons of attention. And finally, she got the attention of the KGB, the secret police. And at age 28, she was sentenced to seven years of hard labor in the gulag. And so she spent seven years suffering for her faith. While she was there, the presence of Jesus showed up time and time again in tangible, physical, mystical, unexplainable ways. The experience of suffering for your faith has been chronicled throughout history as some of the greatest and sweetest and most profound times of personal growth that anybody's ever experienced. Let me leave you with the final one, and that is this. Love your enemies.
And the reason why I put enemies in quotes is because if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't have any enemies. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people, Paul says. There are sinister forces out there. That's the devil working. But it's not against people. And what people need, even people that don't know the truth or that are promoting something that they may not even fully understand what's behind it. Like the teachers who taught me stuff that wasn't true about the world. I can vilify those people or I can do what Jesus said to do and that's love people. Think about the profound power of the one-two punch of truth and love demonstrated and lived out by people who care. That they love people, even people they disagree with, and those people can feel that love coming from God through you to them. What would happen if you started living that way in your life, unafraid of what people said, the consequences, trusting God, and full of love? What would happen if every Christian lived by truth, told the truth, and lived in love? I believe that God has put us at this place at this time to make a profound impact on the world in which we live, to help people that are really hurting. But it's going to take real Christians committed to a real God who are committed to live truth and love from the depth of our hearts. May that be you. May that be me. During that message, Tim briefly referenced a book by Rod Dreher called Live Not By Lies. And in an upcoming episode, I'm going to be sharing with you excerpts from an interview I did with Rod Dreher about that book as well as his other book, The Benedict Option. As I've said before, one of the things I'm trying to do in this podcast is introduce you to thought leaders who can put in perspective the kind of antagonism we're facing and the kind of courageous choices necessary uh, for parents. Tim Hawks is one of those leaders, and I'm sure you'll be hearing more from him in future episodes of this podcast. Take courage. Antagonism has always been part of what it means to be a follower of Christ, and it's always been a challenge for Christian parents who want their kids to stand out rather than just fit in with the dominant culture. So let's continue to encourage one another along that path. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. This podcast was brought to you in part by DryFaithHome.com. We help local churches reach and disciple busy families. We'd love to help you if you're interested. Again, DryFaithHome.com. If you'd like to support our work, then give to your local church because that is your most important reinforcing community.